0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, hey, we are approaching the, the end of Romans here, just a few more weeks to go, really. And one of the things that I hope you're, you're picking up as we've been working through Romans is the, the biblical historical context. Uh, Paul's writing a letter around the year AD 57, right, to these Roman Christians, a, a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile Christians who didn't always get along. Last week, we looked at all of chapter 14 and some of, the, some of the specific issues that were uh, causing quarreling amongst the Jews and the Gentile Christians, the Jewish and Gentile Christians there in Rome, tertiary issues, we called them, opinions, Paul calls them in Romans 14 verse 1. They were matters of table fellowship and uh, the observance of certain days. Um, and, and then we talked about tertiary issues that we can tend to quarrel over within the church in 21st century uh, you know, America. But what we said last week is that while the issues they were quarreling over were tertiary, the gospel uniting us despite our disagreements over tertiary issues is not itself a tertiary issue. We talked about the strong and the weak last week and what we're to do when disagreements arise within the church? What we're to do? This week now, in this passage, we get the why. Right, so last week was the what, what to do. This week in this text, we get the why. And this is a, this is a crucial passage in the book of Romans, right? I, I know that Romans is winding down, right? It can, it can seem, it can be tempting to feel like, hey, we're kind of past all the good stuff, right? Um, but many scholars actually see the passage that we're looking at today as the climax to the entire letter. In it, Paul gives us three reasons why. We can, we can find it here. Three reasons why, three motivations, if you will, for pursuing unity in the church, even in the face of disagreements and quarreling over tertiary issues. The first reason Paul gives us for pursuing unity in the church, the first motivation, is the example of Christ. And we're in Romans 15, if you haven't figured that out, it's page 949 in those Black Pew Bibles if you need one. But Paul begins chapter 15 by summing up, in some ways, chapter 14. Look at Romans 15 again, looking at at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So remember, he was addressing the weak and the strong last week. And, and now in Romans 15, in a, in a summary way, he says to the strong, he says the strong have an obligation, a God given obligation to bear with. Okay, that word means to carry or to support. The stronger to carry along the weak despite their failings, despite their weaknesses, instead of seeking to please ourselves. Now that's really hard to do, it's way harder to do than it sounds. Think about it. It's easy to please yourself. That's pretty easy. Um, It's easy to be self-focused. It's easy to be self-exalting, self-seeking, self-reliant, self-determined. That comes naturally to our fleshly selves. What's way harder and actually requires the Holy Spirit living and operating in us is to seek to please others which is actually what Paul says in verse two. And notice he's addressing all now in verse two. So verse one, the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please themselves. Verse two, let each of us, he's addressing all now, strong and weak, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This pulls together most of what we were talking about last week. Remember Romans 14, verse nine, where he said, so then let us, all of us, weak and strong, pursue what makes for peace, and mutual upbuilding. He told us how. Right, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 then, in a way, summarize chapter 14. But now look at the first word of verse 3 for or because. Do you see it there? Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, okay? Pursue unity in the body of Christ. Why? Verse 3 for or because Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Okay, so the first reason why we're to pursue unity, the first motivation that Paul gives us is the example of Christ himself. Think about Jesus, Paul says. He's our great example. He's way more than that, but he's he's not less. Don't look to please yourself, but instead bear with others as Christ bore with you, not just in your failings, but your sins. Like he, he bore them all the way to the cross. Look to Jesus, Paul says, the one who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God as a thing to sort of hang on to, right? That's what Philippians 2 teaches us. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He came for us to bear with us, to bear for us what we in our weakness could not take care of on our own. Christ is the example, Paul says. The Son of God, the, the Son of Man who didn't come to be served, even though he's God, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. So why are we to not seek merely to please ourselves? Why are we to seek please seeking to, to please our neighbor? Not in a people-pleasery way, by the way, but in a loving way, bearing with one another, because Christ is our example. For it is written, did you catch that part? Paul roots this in scripture here. He he actually quotes from Psalm 69. Look at verses three and four. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, when Paul quotes Psalm 69 verse nine here, he's quoting a psalm that, that David wrote. And if you go back and you study Psalm 69, what you find is that it's all about the the unjust, unreasonable suffering of a righteous man, David himself in this case. And Paul quotes it, applying it to Christ, the truly righteous one, who suffered the greatest injustice, the greatest unreasonableness for the sake of you and me. And Paul says that it was written for our instruction. Okay, so we're to learn from this. We're to learn from Christ our example in not pleasing ourselves but living instead for others and that through the encouragement of scriptures like this, we might have hope. Now, we're going to come back to this hope business in a little bit here. Hope is a major theme in this passage, but but for now, I simply want us to see that one of our motivations for unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ is the example of Christ. The second motivation then ties in right, right with it. These are these three reasons that this morning that we're looking at, these three motivations, they're they're tightly intertwined. All right, in fact, if you turn back in your Bible to, to, uh, to Psalm 69 real quick, I want you to see this. Psalm 69, it's um it's page 483 in the Black Pew Bible but we'll have it on the screen too. But if we, if we go back and we read uh, a little bit more of the context surrounding what Paul quotes from Psalm 69 and Romans 15, we actually get a feel, for, a little bit more of a feel for what he had in mind when he quoted it. Look at Psalm 69, beginning in verse seven. It says, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. The dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, notice in verse 7, David writes, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. Whose sake? God's sake. And then the first part of verse nine, right before Paul quotes, um, the, right before the part that Paul quotes in, in Romans fifteen, it says, "For zeal for your house has consumed me." Whose house? God's. This leads us really well then into the second motivation we're given in Romans fifteen for pursuing unity, namely the glory of God. And see, Paul does not write Romans 14 and 15 talking about pursuing peace with one another and unity with one another and bearing with one another so that we can all just get along. That's nice and all, but it's not the end game. And this is something that the the unbelieving world misses when it talks about unity. Um, I don't know if you've driven down Sheridan Boulevard over here. If, if you're approaching two pillars from, from the west coming down Sheridan Boulevard, um, over at 33rd, right by that roundabout, it's down now. I actually went by it this week to take a picture, and it's down now. But there was a big sign. Did you guys see it? was up for like a year. Someone took like a four-by-eight sheet of plywood and some spray paint, and, and spray painted on there. Can't we all just get along? Did anybody see that? Me see that? Yeah. Some of you saw that when it was up there. Um, quoting Rodney King, I would imagine from the LA riots in 1992, right? Can't we all just get along? Can't we? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't life be so much easier? So much more enjoyable? So much more just? And we all long for that. It's actually a longing for heaven that God has put in us Ecclesiastes 3.11 says it this way, that God has put eternity into our hearts. That's part of it. We long to get along. We all long for it. And listen, that day will come for us as Christians when Christ returns and he establishes his perfect reign and rule and all sin is finally and fully removed and all wounds are finally and fully healed and all weaknesses are finally and fully made strong and there's no more oppression, there's, there's no more injustice, no more racism, which is what gave rise to that quote on that sign back in 92. We will all get along. Perfect peace, perfect shalom. It's going to be awesome. Awesome. But in the meantime, as we cry out for that, the, the world misses something that is very important when it cries out for peace, when it cries out for unity. See, the, the world wants unity for unity's sake. As Christians, we, we pursue unity for unity's sake too. That's not a bad thing. Fractured fellowship within the body of Christ is no fun. It's a horrible witness, right? It drives people away from the church rather than draw them into the church. But while the world wants unity for unity's sake, as Christians, we long for unity for God's sake. Look at Romans 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the second reason why, the second motivation that we're given for pursuing unity in the body of Christ, the glory of God. Quarreling over tertiary issues in the church, that's the context, right? We just came out of Romans 14. Quarreling over tertiary issues in the church is not glorifying It works against that. Like, no one looks upon a quarreling church and says, wow, they must have an incredible God. (laughs) No, they look at it and say, how is the church any different than the rest of the world? Like, no one is looking for another group of people to argue with. (laughs) But when we welcome one another, even when we disagree on tertiary issues, When we lay aside the matters that so easily divide, but instead stand united despite them, we give a picture to the world of exactly what this God of ours is capable of, and we give a foretaste of heaven to the world around us. We glorify God. We say through our unity, Our God is incredible look what he's capable of. He's welcomed us. He he welcomes, he unites by the blood of Jesus all who call on him. Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, black, white, Latino, Asian, across all tribes and tongues, across all cultures and continents and centuries, across personal preferences, across even clear convictions on secondary tertiary issues. He breaks down the walls of hostility, church. That's what he does. And we all long for it. And only God is able to do it. How? Through Jesus. Only through Jesus. In accord with Christ Jesus, Paul says in verse 5, together, united together, we with one voice glorify the Father in heaven. And. Did you notice also the way that Paul talks in verses 5 through 7 changed? It changes a little bit. Did you notice that? He's not exhorting us to get along for the glory of God. Hey, get along for the glory of God. No, he actually puts it in the form of a prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. See, it's not something that we're capable of on our own. We need God to do this work. Let me ask you, do you pray like this for our body? Just like on a regular basis. I mean, most of you have been walking with Jesus long enough to know there's all kinds of things that can disrupt the unity of a local church and cause disunity within it and divide it. If you're old enough and been walking with Jesus long enough to know that, you ought to be old enough and been walking with Jesus long enough to to pray like this for the unity of our body. Paul did. Like this was his prayer for the church in Rome. Oh God of endurance and encouragement because they needed both endurance and encouragement as they faced quarreling amongst them. Oh God of endurance and encouragement, grant these Roman Christians to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together they might glorify you, Father. That's how Paul prayed. And if you go and read John 17, that's how Jesus prayed. That's why he can say here in verse 5, in accord with Christ Jesus. Jesus himself prayed this way, didn't he? Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one, even as we are as one. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. That's how Jesus prayed. That was his prayer. He prayed that we would be united, that we would experience the same oneness that he and the Father shared. That that through our unity, the surrounding world who longs for unity would come to understand that God sent Jesus into the world to unite a people to himself for his glory. It was Jesus' prayer, it was Paul's prayer. It should be our prayer too. We cannot accomplish it on our own. God must do it. No amount of voting is ever going to do it. All right? Have you figured this out yet? There is not, has never been, never will be the perfect combination of, you know, city council, mayor, congressman, Supreme Court, president that's going to bring this about, right? No amount of education will ever do it either. We're not going to enlighten ourselves into the kind of unity that the world longs for. And the same is true within the church. No amount of reasoning is going to accomplish this. Do you know how unreasonable you can be? I do. I include myself, right? For all that I like to think of myself as a reasonable person, I can be pretty unreasonable too, right? We all are. Especially when we're fully convinced, like Paul talked about last week being fully convinced, passionately holding firm convictions on secondary, tertiary issues, will never, by our own strength and reasoning, accomplish the kind of unity that we long for within the body of Christ. So what do we do? We pray for it. We pray for it. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and his example. We bear with one another, seek to please our neighbor for their good and build him up just like Christ. And we pray asking God to grant us harmony so that God would be glorified. Not just that so we'd all get along. Our prayer is that God would grant us to live with harmony with one another so that he would be glorified. Through the unity that only comes about by him. His Spirit working in and through us. Unity in the church, just like the eschatological unity at the end of time, is a work of God. So we pray for it. Why do we pursue unity? Reason number one, the example of Christ. Reason number two, the glory of God. Reason number three now, the plan of salvation. Remember what's been going on in Romans. Remember, it's a, it's a letter. Right, It's not originally intended to be preached over 50 weeks, believe it or not, even though that's a helpful way for us to kind of soak it all in. right? But it, it's, it was intended to be read all at once. It's a letter that is all about the gospel and the glory of God. That's what Romans is about. This gospel that is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to so the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul spent all of Romans 9-11 through 11 elaborating on this. So there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. No distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The same gospel, this is the same gospel that went out from Jerusalem, right, into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Places like Rome, or Spain, like we're going to see next week or South Africa, or Mumbai, or Boston, or Joplin, or Hastings, and even little old Lincoln, Nebraska? Why are we to pursue unity? Why are we to bear with one another and seek to please not ourselves, but our neighbor, laying aside our freedoms for the sake of the weak, seeking to build one another up in peace and mutual upbuilding? Because when we don't, we're missing the big picture of what God is up to in His grand plan of salvation across centuries and continents and cultures. He's saving one people, one body, through His one and only Son. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This has been a theme building steam all the way throughout the letter. And it climaxes, in a way, right here in verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's the Jews. That's God's Old Testament, Old Covenant people. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, pause right there. Paul says that Jesus came to the Jews to show God's truthfulness. God is... Our God is truth. He is true. He never lies. I mean, think about that. He always does what he says he's going to do. How refreshing is that? And he did. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, he promised to send one who would bruise the head of the serpent, and he did. All through the Old Testament there's whispers and foreshadowings and foretellings of the prophets by the prophets of the one who would come and rule and reign the savior and he did he sent Jesus the savior of the world confirming the promise given confirming the promises given to the patriarchs like the one we read of in Genesis 12 that he made with Abram he told him to leave his kindred and his father's house and, and, and go into a land that he would show him. What did he say? "I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." If we understand what's going on in the New Testament, and God establishing his new covenant people. If we understand what Paul has been telling us in Romans, we understand something of this business about all the families of the earth being blessed. And it all comes to a head in a three-letter word that begins verse 9. And. And. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and, this is a huge and, like from our vantage point, it is really hard for us to understand how big this and is, it's big, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. See, see the Jews knew that God was going to send the Messiah to them, he promised But what they missed is that he was going to work through them, through this Messiah he sent to them to bring blessing to everyone everywhere who would call on him. One people. One global people, again, across centuries and continents and cultures, to glorify him. All across the planet. All across time. Jews and Gentiles, according to his mercy, this is the grand plan of salvation. And Paul grounds all of this for us in the Old Testament itself, quoting four passages across the three main divisions of the Old Testament scriptures, the writings, the law, the prophets, beginning in verse 9, quoting from Psalm 18, okay, the writings, what does he say? Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then verse 10, quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Back to the writings again in verse 11, quoting from Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And finally, verse 12 from the 11th chapter of the prophet Isaiah, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Listen, this is Paul's not so subtle way of saying that God, all of God's Old Testament scripture was pointing forward to this. It was all pointing forward to this grand plan of salvation. One people, one global people spanning the first coming of Christ to the second being gathered together to, to glorify, to worship the one true God who orchestrated it all. And notice too, there's a progression in these quotations. We might say that it reflects the progressive revealing of God's grand plan of salvation throughout the Old Testament. In verse 9, when Paul quotes Psalm 18, a psalm that David wrote, the reference is to David praising God amongst the Gentiles. Did you catch that? It starts there. I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Verse 10 then is an exhortation to the Gentiles for the Gentiles to rejoice with God's Old Testament people. Join in, that's what he's saying. So, first, David says, I'm going I'm to praise you amongst the Gentiles. Verse 10, join in, Gentiles. Join in in praising this Lord. Verse 11 builds on that. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And then, verse 12 the root of Jesse who we should understand from christmas time is a direct reference to jesus christ right the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the gentiles he'll be lord over jews and gentiles also known as everyone right and in him even the gentiles will hope like that's you and me it's everyone who is not one of god's old testament jewish people who trusts in Jesus. It includes Gentile Christians in Rome in the first century. It includes Gentile Christians in this room in the 21st century. Now, something that struck me this week when I was studying this passage was the last word of verse 12. Hope. You see it there? In him, the Gentiles will hope. Hope. It links up with verse 4 that we looked at a little bit ago. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have, what's the word? Hope. You see it in both places? And then it shows up again in verse 13. Paul ends this passage by saying, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope, hope. Hope, hope. What's Paul getting at here? Why all this talk about hope when he's giving us reasons for pursuing unity in the body? Well, I think what he's getting at is that hope comes through realizing that God is doing exactly what he promised he would do. And Paul is telling the Roman Christians, he's telling us in verses 8 through 12. God has done and is doing exactly what He promised He would do. He's saving a people for Himself, a global one. He's promised to do it and He's doing it. And there's an immense hope that comes from trusting in a God who keeps His promises. There's even more immense hope that comes from trusting in a God who folds us into his promise and works through us to continue to fulfill his promise. Which means, as we pursue unity, we experience it. We experience God fulfilling his promise. We are included and get to see and even participate in his grand plan of salvation. To everyone, anyone, everyone, everywhere who believes. And the result is joy and peace in believing. As we pursue unity, as you and I tend unity and cultivate it amongst us as believers, we're to reflect upon the grand plan of God for salvation. Seeing it played out in us and through us and amongst us and beyond. We get, like we have a front row seat of seeing the hope of God, the God of hope, at work fulfilling his promise. So why do we pursue unity? What are the reasons, the the motivations, the example of Christ, the glory of God, and the plan of salvation? And one last thing. Um, Did you notice in verse 13 that Paul changes the way he talks again? It's a prayer or a benediction, if you like. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Just like back in verses 5 through 7, this is not something that we do in our own church. It's not something we conjure up. It's something God does in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He fills us with joy and peace in believing and causes us to abound in hope. God does all that. Like, Would you give yourself to praying like this as we tend to the unity of our body? Would you pray that the God of hope, what a title, by the way, the God of hope. I mean, who doesn't need more hope? Our God is the God of hope. He's got an endless supply. There's no supply chain issues, you know? No shipping delays. He, it's delivered by his Holy Spirit who lives in every single person who believes in Jesus here. Would you pray that this God of hope of ours would fill each and every one of us, not just with a little joy, not just with a little peace, but all joy and peace in believing, believing that we belong to him, Believing, verse 7, that we've been welcomed by Christ and therefore welcomed into His body. Believing that we belong to His body. Despite our past. Despite all the sins that we carried into this relationship that were nailed to that cross. All the sins that we committed. All the sins that were done against us. Regardless of our upbringing. The churchiness or not of that. Despite all of our wounds and weaknesses, despite all the baggage that we lug into this room with us, would you pray that our God of hope would fill each and every one of us with all joy and all peace in believing that unity isn't a pipe dream? Because it feels like it sometimes. Like unity in a church can feel so fickle and fragile so impossible. Maybe even we would use the word hopeless at times. Would you join me in praying that the God of hope would fill us with all joy and peace in believing that not only is it possible, it's promised because of him. Like It's going to happen. When Christ returns, we who are believers are going to experience this in the fullness of all that it is. So let's band together now and praying that we get a glimpse of that here and now, heaven breaking in, praying that the God of hope would fill us with all joy and hope and believing that this was the plan, God's great plan of salvation to bring together people who otherwise, apart from Christ, would divide as fast as the culture around us. Believing that we belong to this body despite our quirks and passions. Believing that we don't have to hide those out of fear of not belonging, fear that someone's going to think that you're a weirdo or be afraid of you. Believing that we belong despite the fact that we don't agree with everyone on every issue in this room. The tertiary issues from chapter 14, remember? It's a letter, we're still in the context. Despite being fully convinced, having convictions on secondary issues, believing that this is a place for us, it's a place for you because Christ has welcomed you. God didn't make any mistakes. He didn't forget to sanctify that position that you have on XYZ tertiary issues before He folded you into His family and brought you into Two Pillars Church. We're different. We think different on tertiary issues, matters of opinion, he called them in 14 verse 1, but they're tertiary issues. So, would you pray that despite those differences, we would keep the main thing, the main thing, Christ alone for salvation, the gospel and the glory of God? And that we would follow Christ's example, glorify God together. <laughs> take up our place in salvation history amongst the ragtag group of humans called Jesus people and that the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in all of that, we would abound in hope. Let's pray. Uh, God of endurance, God of encouragement, Would you grant us now to to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together with one voice we would glorify you. God of hope, fill us. Fill each of your sons and daughters in this room with all joy and peace in believing so that By the power of the Holy Spirit, they may abound in hope. All this we pray in accord with Jesus and in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.